but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We're coming to you a couple days after the conclusion of the Sunshine Double Swing, after the end of the Miami Open, and <laughs> Iga Świątek won them both. She did. And I would really like to see the Oxford English Dictionary entry on the Sunshine Double, because I really want to know when that came about. When did the terminology happen? Why? Because... A few years ago, it just became a thing that everybody knew all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And previously, I didn't identify that stretch by that that term. Okay, but are you wanting to know it so that you can demean it or accept that it's worthy of <laughs> praise? I gotta... No, I'm just curious. Last we came to you, it was an Ash Barty retirement special, one that, one that we were not particularly thrilled to record, and one of the... The lasting sentiments from that episode and from a lot of all of you thinking about Ash's retirement retirement was what is the WTA going to look like going forward? Who is going to be the next number one? Will there be a vacuum left at the top of the women's game? Is there going to be a period of, well, what what what's going on? How long are we going to feel Ash Barty's absence on the women's tour? And we got a lot of answers to those questions in the last week. By the time we recorded, it was already apparent that Iga was going to take the number one ranking. And while nobody is replaceable, least of all Barty, the void at the top didn't last very long. Iga really did earn that number one ranking outright and gave us a kind of a taste of potential rivalries that may develop over the next few years as well. With whom? With Naomi Osaka, for one. Well, you said rivalries, plural, so... Okay, well, let's start there. Okay. Right, I kind of expected it would take at least a little while before we got some idea, some clear idea of who is the firm number one on the women's tour. And it's kind of crazy that within the last six weeks, with Ika winning the first three 1,000 tournaments on the year in Doha, Indian Wells, and Miami... And with just how dominantly she's won them, that she now, she pretty much now has as big a lead as Ash did when she retired as number one. Yeah. And we were talking on that episode about how while the WTA can be chaotic, there was stability at the very tip top for a few years now, right? Ash was number one for over 100 weeks and it wasn't clear what it was going to look like afterward. And now Iga seems to be asserting herself as that person. Of course, she has a Rome title to defend, I think quarterfinal points at Roland Garros to defend, but clay is her best surface, and she does have opportunity to make up ground there. With the win in Miami, she's now won 17 consecutive matches. She joins Steffi Graf and Kim Clijsters and Victoria Azarenka as the only woman to have achieved the sunshine double in the same season. To your question before of when did this become a thing, I watched Steffi's career. I watched 
Kim's career. I only really knew of it when Vika won it. Yes. Yeah. It seems a very 2010s thing to me because I remember watching Kim do it and coming back from this wrist injury that threatened to end her career and having this incredible 2005 winning her first major at the U.S. Open. Just want to drop that in there because that was one of my favorite years of tennis ever. Which one? 2005. Okay. Iga's path to the title in Miami, beating Golubic, Brengel, Goff, Kvitova, Pegula, and then Naomi Osaka in the final. Every single match in straight sets. Only one of those 12 sets was she pushed beyond four games, and that was Jessica Pegula in the semifinals. Three of those sets were bagels, and we're beginning to take for granted that when Iga plays well and wins a title, she's wiping the floor with her opponents. Right? These scorelines are uh, a little bit scary. The last of those three bagels came in the 12th set that she played in Miami, closing out the title against Naomi Osaka with a bagel. <laughs> yeah. Let's start at the beginning. This was only their second meeting ever. The first was way back in 2019 in Toronto. Naomi beat Iga 7-6-6-4. Iga was only 18 at the time. She was much heralded as somebody who could be great. But we didn't know a whole lot about her then. She wasn't a major winner. Naomi was. And Naomi actually went on to lose to Serena Williams in the next round, which we were lucky enough to see in person. Mm-hmm. Serena's only win against Naomi we got to see in person. That, that was one of the coolest things that has happened to us as yeah. podcasters. We got free tickets for that session. I think we were asked, like, when do you want to go? And we're like, well, we'll go this night. <laughs> and we went and we were able to see... Naomi and Serena for free. I mean, that sounds braggy, but it was just like it, really cool. It honestly for us. never happens. No. So going into this match, they both have a really good record in finals, right? Iga is five and one on the WTA tour. This was before the Miami final. Naomi was seven and three, and you got the feeling that this could be the rivalry, especially on hard courts, where both of these women have reached heights that are just really impressive and feel like very few have reached that level of play. Okay, but as the name of this episode is called Doing the Most, we were, and a lot of folks were, doing the most with the anticipation for this match. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about what these women were bringing to this final, they were a tale of two paths. Naomi is just recently resurgent, Iga is well and truly flying high. And so to think that this was going to be a stellar final would would be squarely banking on Naomi's track record as a hardcore assassin. Right. Because she hasn't had the match play. She hasn't had the match wins. And while, hell, that semifinal against Belinda Benches was incredible to watch, Iga was, for me, the clear favorite for this this final. Yes, yes. I think a lot of the anticipation was more of what could come to be in the future. I think most people understood Naomi hasn't played a whole lot. She had that unfortunate end in Indian Wells. She seems to be sort of getting her footing and enjoying herself again on the court in Miami. But that doesn't necessarily mean she's back in full flight, right? That her game's exactly where she wants it to be. And on the other hand, Iga 
is, uh, I mean, just dominating opponents. That kind of momentum is really difficult to overcome. And within a match, you can see how Iga builds momentum after winning a first set. Naomi did some great stuff on serve, but it wasn't a particularly compelling match. She couldn't generate any breakpoints on Iga's serve. And once Iga wins the first set on hard courts, it's kind of lights out when she's playing like this. At this point, it's once Iga wins a first set, period. It's <laughs> yeah. just circumstantial yeah. that the last few tournaments have happened to be hardcore. Building off what you said just now, I think one of the lessons going forward from the most recent weeks on the tours, the thing that we should take away most is that we should stop looking toward the future. We should stop wanting to and needing to make these grand proclamations as to what the tour, what tennis could look like if this person did that, if Nick Kyrgios did this, if Naomi Osaka is back, if Ash Barty plays five years, how many titles will she win? If Carlos Alcaraz wins Miami, will he win? He's probably going to win 60 majors. <laughs> it's a For me, it's a lesson in staying in the here and now. And this is tempting to do among commentators and analysts of any sport, right? To to be the one to predict the future. But tennis actually happens to be at a pretty exciting place at this very moment. And we'll talk about the men in a little while and prognosticating about how many majors Carlos will win and all of that. But on the WTA, the gals are already doing it. The ATP has done a great job with next-gen finals and all of that. The WTA doesn't need a next-gen because the next-gen is the current gen. People are now saying, can you stop generating? Stop hatching and snatching. Can those who have already hatched snatch some more before any of you incubate? <laughs> right. But Iga Svantec and Bianca Andreescu both won their first major at 19. Naomi was 20. Emma Raducanu was, what, 18 last September? The WTA girlies are already doing it. They don't need a next-gen finals or anything. So let's just kind of enjoy it while it's happening. And this isn't to, to like, compare the men and the women or say that these guys' achievements aren't great. It's just that, okay, yeah, we, we see you. But it's happening on the WTA, like, a lot. To take that a step further, it's happening a lot on the WTA tour and save for maybe the British press being beside themselves, the reaction to the achievements of the women does not match the hyperbole, the rabid response to somebody's performance like Carlos Alcaraz. Because Iga Svantec is a prodigy. Like yes. the way we t we've talked about, well, not I, but the way a lot of folks are talking about Carlos Alcaraz you'd make it seem like we've never seen a talent like this before. And so he wins Miami and folks are like, well, I think he's definitely going to win 20. And then somebody says, you say he'll win 20, I say 21. You say he'll win 30, I say 40. You say he'll win 40, I say 20 plus 20 plus 21 plus one more, he'll win 62. Yeah, there is like some measure of one-upmanship among like so-called tennis experts, right? They want to be the, the first ones to predict this this greatness. And I hope that his career is incredible, right? If he has the talent and he wants it, 
he should go out and get it. But like, there are so many variables between now and two decades from now. We have no idea what's going to happen. Or two years from now. Exactly. But back to the women. Naomi's victory over Belinda Bencic, I think, was probably really important for her in the long run. It was a great way to snap that losing streak against Bencic. Their games obviously match up really well for Belinda. She loves absorbing and redirecting that power that Naomi gives her. And Naomi really needs to mix up speeds and the height of the ball. And it's not necessarily something she loves to do. Mm. Right? She doesn't have the most variety of the women at the top. It was such an opportunity for Bencic to remain in the talk at this tournament. And then after winning that first set to then succumb to 18 aces from Naomi Osaka in three sets, that must have stung quite a bit. (laughs) And if I'm being especially petty and shady, what I'm thinking here is that legitimately Belinda Bencic has been heralded for a long time. She's had to deal with a lot of injuries and she's had to see a lot of women younger than her come and win titles that she probably felt and we all probably felt that she would have at least won one of those majors by now. And the fact of it is that she is one of the most talented tennis players on tour. There is barely anything she cannot do on a tennis court. And yet, outside of winning the Tokyo gold medal, the slam results have not ratcheted up as yet. And she's still very young. She's She's been around a a long time. 24, 25. Right, right. So there's tons of time for her. And then she has to play Linda Fruvirtova today in Charleston and get really pushed in that second set. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's somebody coming all the time, all the time on the WTA tour. So now Iga heads into the clay season. (laughs) Uh, The only thing to stop her and her confidence is what? Expectation? Barbara the, bur- the burden of being number one. As we say all the time, anything can happen and we should expect anything to happen. And I just cautioned against making grand declarations. But at a very minimum, looking at this, she's put herself in an excellent position to continue this momentum on her favorite surface. Yes, yes. Krejcikova's number two is only five points ahead of Paula Badosa. But also does have a lot of clay points to defend, but the rest of the top 10 is pretty packed together, points-wise. There's roughly 800 points separating numbers 2 and 7. Sviantec has a roughly 1,700-point lead at number 1 over Krejcikova, followed by Bedosa at 3, Sakari at 4, Sabalenka 5, Kantavate 6, Karolina Pliskova 7, and a brand-new career high... Cracking the top eight for the first time is Danielle Collins, the highest-ranked collegiate WTA player in history. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Naomi Osaka is back up to number 35. Luckily, she will not have to rely on wild cards going forward at most events. And after this tournament, she talked about how she's ready to tackle her surface bugaboos to really make strides on clay and grass this year. Because at this point, folks kind of make fun of her and her lack of results and prowess on those two surfaces, saying she's a one-trick pony. Like, okay, yeah, Iga and Naomi may be the premier rivalry going forward, but what, only on hard courts? 
Like, what is she going right. to do on the other surfaces? And I don't think there's a really good reason that Naomi can't excel on clay. She, I don't think there's a question about her fitness. It's really just about match play and gaining confidence. It's also her style of play, really. Sure. But it doesn't mean that she can't make enough of an improvement to where she's competitive. Yeah, if she can, like, dig into points and keep a level head within points, she has that kill shot that can end points on any surface. And these days, it seems like you do kind of need that on clay. For me, it's not so much the kill shot to be effective on clay. It's having the variety in, in game and being able to, to incorporate more into your game. Do you remember last year how just how many drop shots we saw in, in the clay season? Mm-hmm. But I think if you don't have that big weapon, you do risk being out here dirtballing for like three hours. And not everybody's going to do that or can do that. But maybe you have to be willing to do it for a match or two. Sure. Because eventually the chamber is going to run out of bullets. I don't like that metaphor, first of all. Okay. But as you just said to me, you're going to run into a Cerebos Tormo. You're going to run into a Cameo Sorio who is going to frustrate you and, and drag you around for hours, right? Shout out to Darius Saville, recently married to Luke Saville. You may have known her previously as Daria Gavrilova. She is making a comeback. She's back inside the top 130 by making the fourth round in Indian Wells and the quarterfinals in Miami. Yeah, she had some great wins in Indian Wells, taking out Jabour and Mertens. And reaching the quarterfinals, she gets all the way to Bencic, losing to Bencic and setting up that marquee semifinal, Bencic in Osaka. The last thing of note that I want to mention from Miami is the women's doubles final where Vera Zvonareva and Laura Zygamund won the title. They've played three tournaments together this year and won two of them. And I believe they've only played 10 tournaments together. The first of which was the 2020 US Open where they won the title. Their partnership was derailed because of a long-term injury for Zygamund, but they're back. And I just read an interview with a Champions Corner interview with WTA insider Courtney Nguyen, where they were asked, well, what are your plans going forward for the season? Because, like, duh, y'all have something here, clearly. You play really well together, but you're both at this this kind of strange place in your careers where you're both at least still conceiving of yourselves as primarily singles players, and you want to be inside the top 100, But because of your ranking, you kind of have to pick your spots where you play. And that may not coalesce for both your schedules to play Mm. doubles together. And they were like, well, you know, we could prioritize doubles and we're sure we'd be good at it. Well, clearly at this point. But for Zygamund, we know that she's a a hell of a clay court player and this is her spot. This is her time of year. And so she said, well, it's... If it's to work out, it's to work out. If our schedules align, great. But for me, I need to use, I need to make best use of my eight protected ranking um, entries in this clay season to build my ranking back up. So that's that's just something to look at going forward. Because as of right now, Zvonareva is up to number 23 in doubles. Yeah. Zygamunt, before she tore her ACL, was and still is, a great, great clay court player. She was the bugaboo of many a top player throughout the 2010s. The injury really 
messed up her momentum in singles. And Vera is 37 years old. Actually, we share a birthday, not a birth date. Not, you sure? Not quite there yet. Very but close. We, I, like right? to re, I like to retain some mystery here. Mm. Yes, but we have the same uh, day of birth. As do quite a few people on tennis Twitter. We've yes, learned over yes, the yes. years. And Vera is still chugging along in her singles comeback from retirement. But these are both excellent doubles players. Before we get into the men's side of Miami... Just a couple of hours ago, we learned that Joe Wilfred Sanga will be retiring after the French Open. Oh. I know this is, like, not the best news for you, personally. No, not a huge surprise, though. But it did, and why I put this here, because it's fresh in my mind, I want to get it out. I, we know that Joe Wilfred Sanga is infamous for having said in a press conference many years ago... His famous quote about women's tennis players and their hormones. Now, I went back and looked it up because I needed a refresher. You can wax poetic about him afterward, but... (laughs) He was asked, why is it that the men are so consistently having the top seeds in semifinals and the women are not? And he said that it's because they're emotionally unstable. And then went on to say that... The women are. The women are emotionally Mm -hmm. unstable And followed it up by saying, you know, they have all these hormones and all that other bad stuff or something like that. Like, dude, (laughs) the reason why it's always the top four, it's because they're so much better than you. Those guys, as history has shown, are miles better than anybody else that they played against. Should we bring up their head-to-head records? Like, wow, talk about something that was already not going to age well, but... Mercy. I would love to see the question posed again in light of the innumerable emotional histrionic outbursts among the ATP men recently and to see if that's going to be attributed to hormones. Mm. Yeah, so not his best moment. No, uh, we're not going to... Speak for yourself. No, no, I'm saying we're not going to do a tribute to Joe at this point because the news just came out. He hasn't retired yet. We'll save that for Roland Garros. Do we do tributes for people who have been banned from the podcast? Well, in the that past? was, you know, you did that unilaterally. So you're going to prepare a soliloquy. And it wasn't even for a good reason. Like, you should have banned him for the hormone comments. That predated, You banned him for something else. That predated <laughs> the existence of this show. Okay. He was banned for losing a two-set-to-love lead against Tennis Sandgren. Oh, at a yes. Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. That's what he was banned for. I knew it had something to do with tennis with a Y. Anyway, I have never attempted to excuse those comments, but I will miss Joe Wilfried. He's one of my faves. And, you know, I'll wear that. You can trash me if you want. Mm -hmm. Let's just be real here and call it what it is. A lot of it has to do with thirsting. Okay, fine. Uh, But we're around the same age, so it's not like weird. (laughs) You know, before before you all start. (laughs) Miami was dominated by Carlos Alcaraz, following up a semifinal performance in Indian Wells, where he pushed Rafa Nadal to the brink in the semifinals. He comes to Miami and wins the entire thing for the biggest title of his career. Did you get my reference earlier when I was saying, you say he'll win 40, I say he'll win 60? It was a Gone with the Wind fabulous. I thought so. That's what it was. You say I'm crazy. 
I say, I'm fabulous. Exactly. <laughs> That's what that was. Wow, that was such a great Atlanta reference. Mm. Carlos Alcaraz is uh, has arrived. He's really top of mind for basically any person talking about tennis these days. And I always feel like it's our job to dial back hype in general. <laughs> well, it's easy when it's so out of pocket. Yeah. People are doing the most with Alcaraz. And it doesn't mean that the hype and the excitement is not deserved or earned to some extent. It's just why do we always have to take it that much further? Yeah. Listen, the guy has such a complete game. He obviously is mentally so there. Like he has great players have something that other talented players don't. He's able to put all these gifts together at a young age that we don't really see that often on the men's side anymore. Mm. Typically, men his age don't have the touch at net, don't have one of, this is not hyperbole, one of the best lobs going in tennis, period. Like, these are the kind of feel shots that tend to develop a little bit later on. But he he seems to be able to do whatever he wants on a tennis court. (laughs) And there also seems to be a bit of a unknowable, unnameable, etc. fueling him right now that sets him apart. That X factor that, that, you know, people are always looking for with tennis players. He seems to have it going now as to whether that will continue uninterrupted. That's a whole nother matter because winning big titles and he's yet to win a Grand Slam. Let's just put that out there. It's wild that we're speculating how many slams he's going to win when he hasn't even won one. He hasn't even played Mm. the French Open before. And so the only comparison that folks can make is, well, Nadal hadn't won a slam or Nadal hadn't played the French Open before he won it in 2005. That's immediately where we're going to jump to right now. Like, that (laughs) seems a bit much. Right. And at that time, Nadal was facing down a prime Federer won 11 titles in 2005, played a classic Miami final against Federer, won his first Grand Slam, having debuted at Roland Garros. These are all things that, like, I understand setting up this precedent because what Carlos is doing is so unusual at his age, but I don't know that it's particularly helpful for him. Like, it's interesting as as a commentator to place it in historical perspective, but... Let's, you know, I think we said this on our previous episode, like, let's just dial it back and enjoy what's happening. It's interesting to make those comparisons when you compare things that have both already happened. We're comparing Mm -hmm. Nadal's singular rise with something that is 8% loading at the moment. (laughs) Right. And the signs are great, right? There's no disputing that. But to me, it's more interesting to observe these things unfold rather than guess what will happen right because when they don't happen he's then set up for it to be a failure Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. he seems to have zero trouble when it comes to confidence that is not something he's lacking asked about what his goals are for the rest of the season or the clay season he's like yeah i think i can win a slam i think i'm good enough i believe i will and that's a good attitude to have See, I like that. Yeah. Because on the court, I don't find him cocky at all. I find him to be a good sport. He he competes well. He tries his best. 
He is uh, respectful to his opponents. There's a lot to like. But also, we don't really know him. No. I don't know him. He's so young, right? Uh, there, Some analysts have been predicting amazing things for him for a few years, but he's still only 18 years old. Now, in the final versus Rude, he wins 7-5-6-4. The first set was very competitive. Rude seemed less nervous than Carlos, which is understandable, but this was both of their first uh, attempts at a Masters 1000 final. Casper Rude was up 4-2 in that first set. Much of his earlier career, the success came on clay, but he's now shown this year that he is formidable on hard courts as well. Yeah. So in this final, especially in the first set, he was showing that he could scramble, that he could impose his big forehand on the match. He was anticipating Carlos's drop shot very well, which has been a problem for a lot of opponents recently. And Carlos was nervous, right? He, he wasn't playing at the level that we had seen previously, at least early on in the match. But once he found his footing, it felt very much like if he wins his first set, he's probably going to run away with this. And it's crazy to say that about an 18-year-old who we haven't seen play that much, but that really was the feeling, especially as Rude started to show some signs of a hip injury, get treatment. Much of the second set seemed perfunctory to me. I think it's important to note that Carlos won only one point on his second serve in the first set. And luckily, he didn't have to hit that many second serves. Right, His first serve percentage was 79%. But it does show you what he's still able to accomplish while covering up a weakness like that second serve. Because that is his biggest weakness at this right. point. And with everybody who is new, it takes a little bit of figuring out from the other players to develop strategies to make them have to do something different as well. That'll be the thing to look for going forward. Because sure, he may have this prodigious talent, but tennis is also still a game about tactics and executing your tactics. And when folks are now adjusting to those, it'll be a challenge for his team, his coach, himself to be able to implement different strategies and call on different things to win these matches. There's nothing about this is a foregone conclusion. Like we said, (laughs) the only thing that's absolute right now is that we should just be tuning in and enjoying the ride if you want to enjoy the ride if you want to be a hater do that too (laughs) and some players have so many weapons that sure okay you figure them out but that doesn't mean you can beat them right and who knows that that might be carlos's path that players do figure him out but still have a huge problem putting together the tactics to actually beat him But the second serve is a huge opportunity, and he's got many, many years to improve it and figure it out. We don't know that either. That's the point. (laughs) Oh, well, sure. With Miami, he wins his third career title. His first was just last year, plus the next-gen finals. If you count that one, it's four. And he's now number two in the race. In April, he moves 50 points ahead of Medvedev, who is now out with hernia surgery for about a month or two. We keep hearing differing reports on what the actual state of Nadal's injury is. That it's possible he could be back sooner than expected. That maybe the injury isn't as bad as was initially thought. 
So as of right now, it looks like perhaps his entire clay season isn't in as grave a danger as we thought. Mm-hmm. Because right now, heading into the clay season, it's like, well, if Nadal can come back from injury, he would have been the clear favorite every tournament he showed up given his start to the season. Djokovic is going to be allowed to play these tournaments. What is he going to do? Is he going to be able to defend all those points that he has to defend? What kind of shape will he be in? And then now you throw Alcaraz in there as somebody who is showing up every week now. And then there's Casper, whose alleged favorite surface is Clay as well. Dominic Team is coming back. Casper, for his part, beat Zverev this week. He beat the surprise semifinalist, Francisco Serundolo. This is his first Masters final. He's the first Norwegian to reach a Masters final. And he does have a previous hardcourt win in San Diego. So Clay is his best surface, no doubt. But he excels on the surface as well. And just a quick acknowledgement here of Serundolo, who beat Opelka, Mofis, Tiafo, and Sinner, the number nine, this week in Miami. And you'll probably remember he and his brother kind of broke out at around the same time last year, seemingly out of nowhere. Francisco reached the final in Buenos Aires as a qualifier last year. And that was like a week after his brother had won a tournament or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Also in Miami, Medvedev was unable to keep Djokovic from being number one. What he had to do was to win his quarterfinal match against Urkacz, the defending champion, and he would have been assured the number one ranking, but he was unable to do that, losing in straight sets to Urkacz. So now we find out he's had to undergo hernia surgery. He'll be out one to two months. I don't know how the hell he was playing with a hernia. Sounds horrible. And it is a pretty unusual injury for a tennis player. He's going to miss the entire clay season. And if there were a spot in the calendar for Medvedev to miss one to two months, this would be it. Right, right. But I think part of what might be driving this attention toward Alcaraz is that the top guys of the ATP are increasingly either in question or out of action completely, right? So the numbers one, two, four, and six are completely sidelined. Number one, Djokovic is coming back soon to Clay, but he's been out effectively for the first three months of the year. The number three player is repellent, and nobody really wants to root for him these days. There's rumors of Medvedev being potentially banned from Wimbledon unless he signs this thing. Uh, Djokovic is sitting unbothered at the number one spot without even playing. There's a ton of uncertainty on the men's side right now. So you can see why fans would gravitate towards someone like Alcaraz, who's just exciting. I mean, it's not just that. There's been a years-long quest now for the person who is going to take the mantle from the big three. Yeah. Like four years ago, five years, five years ago, 2017, heading into the 2017 season, if you had said, well, Rafa Nadal is going to win the Australian Open in 2022 and he's going to be undefeated until he gets to the final of Indian Wells, all on hard courts, you'd have been like, what is going on on this tour? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, we were promised Dominic Team. He's won a slam, one. We were promised all these other people, and none of them have been the stalwart that folks have been searching for. Right. And so that's that's the context and the the breeding ground that 
has allowed this Alcaraz fervor to develop, I think. Do you talk, people talk about the last generation with the Dimitrovs and the the Berdicks before then, like all these players who are supposed to take that mantle and they never did it. And then another generation came and they really, for the most part, haven't done it. And so now we're looking to the Felixes, the Carloses, all these 21 and unders now to be the ones to displace these grandpas on the <laughs> ATP tour. Right. I, you know, it's a little bit harsh to see people say, oh, well, Tsitsipas is going to get eclipsed by Carlos. And it's okay. Tsitsipas is his time is not over. Right. He's not that old. It's this generation is not done for the old guys have to retire at some point. Uh, let's just, you know, wait and see. Uh, these these careers of the guys who are in their early 20s have not been written yet. Also in Miami, we got another dose of men behaving badly. Brooksby Jensen Swanson, <laughs> he, uh... <laughs> what, you put this on the agenda, and I literally could not remember it. What was it? Which one was this? Keith, Did this actually hit the person? This was the one where he was up 4-1 in the third set, double break, was displeased with losing the point, and then threw his racket behind him to the back of the court kind of skidded it along the ground and it grazed the ball kid and was not defaulted. Yeah. I was very confused because I thought that was an obvious default. If if you actually make contact with somebody on the court, Bernardus has been involved in so many of these incidents lately, right? It seems like Carlos Bernardus is officiating every match. But apparently because the ball person was not injured, it's not immediately a default. Can you imagine? Like, I know, I know that Nole Fam is researching the medical records of that person who was injured by Djokovic at the 2020 US Open. It's being added to a list. And this time, I really don't blame them. And now the ATP has finally sent out some kind of indication that they're taking this stuff seriously. An internal memo to the players, saying that the first three months of the season have seen an unusual frequency of high-profile incidents involving unsportsmanlike conduct. This includes serious cases of verbal and racket abuse. We have seen too many dangerous moments with officials or ball persons caught in the crossfire of aggressive or disrespectful conduct. These incidents shine a bad light on our sport. This conduct affects everyone and sends the wrong message to our fans, especially the young fans. Effective immediately. And as we head into the clay court swing, the ATP officiating team has been directed to take a stricter stance in judging violations of the code of conduct. Additionally, we are also undertaking a review of the code, capital C code, as well as the disciplinary processes to ensure that it provides appropriate and up-to-date penalties for serious violations and repeat offenders. Further information on that will be communicated later in the year. Later in the year? I'm hoping that the review of the code is quicker than the Zverev investigation. Hmm. I thought this was interesting that uh, that they took this step. We will wait to see what it actually looks like in practice. We've talked a bit about the, the Zverev investigation and the issues with Basilashvili 
and other players accused of abuse off the court. And at the time, I sort of conjectured that, okay, the ATP is not comfortable taking actions against players for things that happened outside of the sport itself, right? That happened off court. But then these incidents on court really ratcheted up and my my theory kind of fell away because it was like, well, why are they hesitant to enforce the rules in these cases when they happened on TV in front of everybody and we could see them? And we began to wonder, like, is the ATP just against action in general? Like, do they not realize that this stuff not only hurts their staff and their players, but it puts the brand reputation in jeopardy? Like, they didn't seem to to grasp that. And so I guess now they have. I think you're giving them too much credit again. They only act when something becomes untenable for them not to act. (laughs) Right. That's the only reason this is happening. And the thing is, like, to their advantage is that tennis so rarely penetrates like the wider culture that I think the sport gets away with tolerating a lot of the stuff, right? Because controversies don't really hit the same way they do if this were football or basketball in North America. Well, they penetrate to wider audiences when somebody like Jensen Brooksby attempts to do the social media apology and screws it up so badly. Did you see that? Mm -hmm. Just how poor that was? Yes. Well, he had to film his conversation with the ball person. And I mean, even his apology didn't really show that much contrition. No. We'll finish the episode with a few etceteras. A couple players coming back from injury ahead of the clay court season. Dominic Team and Stan Wawrinka. Both of them playing last week for the first time in many, many, many months and both losing their first matches. They both returned at the Andalusia Challenger. Team has been out for nine months with these wrist and hand injuries. Stan had not played in a year, and he's had surgery, and it feels like Stan has been out for longer, but uh, he actually did play a fairly full-ish schedule in 2019 and 2020. Shortly after Team lost that match, he revealed that he has tested positive for COVID-19. Also on the injury front, Matteo Berrettini, he's going to be out for an unspecified amount of time with what he called a, quote, minor operation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means. You mentioned earlier that there were rumors of Daniel Medvedev being banned from Wimbledon. You kind of just dropped that in there. What is it that we know and don't know about that? Well, we, we really don't know whether the All England Club is motivated to take action at all. I think it was the British sports minister who was quoted uh, in a Telegraph story written by Simon Briggs about how a private club would have the option to ban a player for a reason like this, right? If Medvedev hypothetically wouldn't sign something that was condemning Russian actions in Ukraine, that he could be banned. Now, uh, signing something would that put him in danger? Would it put his family at risk? Like, there are a lot of questions about this, and none of them are very comfortable or pleasant. This is strictly political posturing, is what this yeah, is. Yeah. Because we talked, when this first happened, we, we wondered out loud, was there any actual merit or utility in banning Russian players? And I still don't know that we have a, an answer on that, but that is different from what this is. If you're taking the position to say, well, 
because of the Russian invasion and war against Ukraine, we are taking this political stance to ban Russian tennis players from playing this tournament, period. That's one thing. But if you're going to say, well, you, sir, unless you sign this document renouncing the war in Russia, renouncing Putin, doing this, doing that, unless you do that, you cannot play. That's an entirely different thing. Yeah. And does it apply to someone like Andrei Rublev, who has spoken out uh, in favor of peace? Like, is he at risk here for being banned? Is it only Medvedev because he's a number one and currently number two player? Uh, it's just, it's weird. And it's not really clear what the All England Club is is intending to do. And it's different from denying someone a visa because unlike the other majors, Wimbledon is run by a private club. This isn't about a country banning a person. So, I mean, this could all just be hot air and speculation on stuff you know, behind the scenes or what, but I personally would have a hard time seeing this happen yeah. under the conditions that it's being spoken about. A lot of news coming out of IMG recently. Francis Tiafo has been announced as the newest client of IMG's tennis wing and will be primarily represented by, you guessed it, no, you probably didn't guess it, Jill Smoller. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here wondering if there are any tea leaves to be read by this <laughs> announcement. What do you mean? I think we are squarely at the point where folks need to be making their peace with a double Williams retirement. Yeah. Um, you know, we we have no inside information. I have no idea what's going on. But from where I'm sitting, it looks like they're both retired. That may not, I hope that's not true. It may not be true. But uh, we haven't really seen a lot of practice footage. I do wish that both Venus and Serena would just kind of let us know. You know, let us down easy. I think this is a kind of letting you down easy in and mm. of itself. Mm. I'm, I'm fine with the way this is going on right now. Like, I can absolutely understand not wanting to make a big old production out of it at this stage of your career. Sure. It's different if you're able to have that one moment in time, one last moment in time, hurrah, and then, you know, go out the way everybody claims they want them to go out. Mm. But given that we are likely past that happening, it becomes kind of a, a ceremonial exit. And these women are not about that life. Right. The only ceremonies they care about are the ones where they're lifting the trophy. Or the Oscars or the Met Gala. After 25 years, they don't owe us anything, but it hurts. It sucks. I just want to know. Venus is 42 this year. Serena is 41 this year. Yep. But this is great news for Francis Tiafo. Get that money. IMG also purchased the Mutua Madrid Open for $400 million. Have you noticed? Okay, this might just be me. I find with these big agencies... It's always hard to figure out, like, who they rep and which tournaments they own. I feel like it's this big secret that tennis journalists know, right? They know which tournaments IMG own. They know who's going to get wild cards because they rep that player. It's not easily accessible information. I mean, well, we know we know about Miami. We do. We also know IMG owns, like, about 20 tournaments, and that includes Miami, San Jose, Barcelona, 
Abu Dhabi, until recently Rio, but beyond that, no idea. And I don't really know where to find that information. Allegedly, the ATP only agreed to approve the sale if IMG divested from the Rio ATP and WTA events. Yeah, so we have some antitrust action going on here. Some conflicts of interest that they're trying to resolve. IMG owns a bunch of events on both the ATP and WTA. In Madrid, they acquired this tournament from the previous operator, which is called Madrid Trophy Promotion, SLU. And IMG has actually absorbed that organization as part of the acquisition. I don't know for sure what this means for TRIAC's involvement. No idea. And this is semi-related. The ATP actually updated their conflict of interest policy back in February. And part of it says, The new qualifications will prevent directors from holding a position on the ATP board if they are affiliated with an entity that does business above a certain threshold with the ATP or any of the ATP's affiliates, including ATP Media and Tennis Data Innovations. This also prevents any company or entity from having more than one representative on the ATP board. So you may recall that on the ATP board of directors, there are an equal number of player representatives and tournament representatives. Now, you know, having this equal number has uh, caused a lot of players to question how much voice they truly have on the ATP when the organization represents both owner and worker interests, essentially, that it's not a union. The PTPA asked back in February when this came out, an important question that applies here, what are these, quote, certain thresholds? Because this is all very vague. It's saying you can do your little conflicts as long as those conflicts don't become too big, and we are the ones who are the arbiters of what that threshold is, and we are also not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, so this might just be a first step. Uh, it's a good sign that they are acknowledging that conflicts of interest are a problem in tennis leadership, but the PTPA does ask a good question here. What's the threshold? How much business can somebody do with the ATP and still be kind of this independent voice on the board of directors? You have here written on the agenda, OMG, did you see Brandy Carlisle interviewing BJK on Ellen? <laughs> Brandy Carlisle is having a great week. She gave an amazing performance at the Grammys. She got introduced by the Joni Mitchell, who has made almost zero public appearances over the past five years, and Bonnie Raitt. And Brandy sits down with Billie Jean King as a guest host on The Ellen Show and basically just gushes to Billie Jean about who she is and what she's meant to her over the years. And I just love to see it. I love that Brandy has really gone out of her way to honor the women who came before her. It's just big lesbian energy is what it is. Also in that interview, something that stood out to me right away, Billy is being asked to describe what happened with the battle of the sexes. And she's saying about Bobby Riggs, quote, he beat this other woman, Margaret Court, and then I had to play him. Beat this other woman. This other woman. This other woman, Margaret Court. You know, I feel like that's a good way to refer to her from that era. She There was really, this other woman. She, I don't know, heard a 24-time Grand Slam singles champion. 
a concocted 24-time <laughs> Grand Slam singles it, champion. It happened. I'm just saying, like, it did happen in real life. But Billie Jean's approach to Margaret over the past decade has been avoidance and a lack of acknowledgement. And it's been very pointed in, in Billie Jean's way. So check out that interview if you haven't yet. And the final thing we'll talk about on this episode, and I'm glad that we, for reasons beyond our control, had to wait this long to record this episode and thus gave this story a chance to kill itself somewhat, is the Will Smith Williams sisters <laughs> Oscars debacle. Immediately no. Immediately no. I've seen what I need to see. No. I would like to remove myself from this discourse. Venus and Serena had to sit there and watch this happen on a night that was the culmination of this journey to honor their father. It was their big crowning achievement, getting to the Oscars. And then to have that happen, to sit there and watch it, and then to have this egomaniac compare himself to Richard to excuse his behavior. And I'm not sitting here getting into whether the behavior needed to be excused or not. I'm commenting on what he uh, yes, did. Yes, On what he did. Like, that was just a metaphorical slap in the face. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm going to excuse myself from commenting on the slap or the joke or two very rich men having beef with each other. Like, that's that's not something I'm going to get into. My only kind of heartbreak was that it did take away from Serena and Venus's and the Williams Price family's moment. Like, I, wa I wanted it to be about them. And that's it. That's it. Amy Schumer, the prototypical white feminist, even got in a stupid joke early in the night about how, oh, the Williams movie is about their father, you know, and not them. It's like, wow, that's hilarious. Never heard that before. She is dizzyingly dizzy, Amy Schumer. Yeah, just a parade of stolen jokes. What I want to talk about is Beyonce's performance, because that's what should, in my mind, really should have been the highlight of the night when I heard that she was going to perform on a tennis court in Compton, the song that she recorded for King Richard. Like that, that moved me to tears just thinking about it. It's so important. It like what it means is really hard to put into words, right? We've seen the Williams Knowles intersection before we've seen serena in the sorry video mm. uh, but you have one of the most important american artists working today in beyonce some of the most groundbreaking athletes alive today in the williams sisters they're all black they all speak to the the diversity of the african-american experience and watching beyonce do this honoring the sisters and their parents it was just a lot it was so emotional. It was so excellent. Like, that's what I want to celebrate. On that note, thanks for listening to episode 260. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is the Body Serve. You're able to find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash the Body Serve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.